I think what you're mentioning is arguably like the bajillion dollar question of organizations. Hello and welcome to The Wardroom, a podcast dedicated to the leadership development of the U.S. Navy's engineering duty officers. I'm your host, Lieutenant Commander Matthew Horton. Today we are joined by Mr. David Epstein. David has worked as an investigative reporter for ProPublica and as a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, and he is the author of not one, but two New York Times bestselling books, The Sports Gene and the book we're going to be discussing today, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. So grab a cup of coffee and join us in the wardroom. So David, welcome to the wardroom. Thank you for having me. Well, your book came highly recommended by one of our previous guests, Rear Admiral Alcano, and and it was obvious from our discussion with her that she had taken a lot of leadership lessons from range to heart. So I just want to go ahead and jump right in. Uh, Can you give us a little bit more background on the book? You know, how did you come to your central conclusion that a lot more of us should expand our range of interests and specialties and, you know, not just focus in on one specific area of expertise? Okay. So in my first book, the sports gene, I ended up, I thought I was going to write about a, a, the 10,000 hour rule and how great it was. And then as I was investigating the science, I, I had been training to be a scientist myself and got off that track when I became a writer. And it turned out that the scientific underpinnings were not very rigorous, basically. And so I ended up critiquing the 10,000 hours rule. And that brought me into a public debate with with Malcolm Gladwell that you can see on YouTube at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. And it was specifically about the best way to develop athletes. And, you know, he's very clever and I didn't want to get embarrassed on stage. So I went through a bunch of his writing to see what he had, had written and, and prepare for that. And he had written about, you know, the, the need for an early head start in, in so-called deliberate practice is very technical practice. And so I said, I'm the science writer at Sports Illustrated. Let me go see what the, the research has to say. And it showed that while elite athletes do spend more time in deliberate practice than lower level athletes, that in fact, when scientists follow their whole, follow them over the course of their trajectory, over the course of their development, they actually specialize later than peers. They have what scientists call a sampling period, where they try a variety of physical activities. They gain these broad general skills that uh, scaffold later technical knowledge. They learn about their interests and abilities and actually delay specializing until peers who plateau at lower levels. And I was sort of surprised to see that. But when we were coming off stage, Malcolm said, hey, you know, you got me on that thing. That doesn't comport with my hypothesis. You want to you wanna run together tomorrow and discuss it. You know, and so we became sort of uh, discussion buddies about this and would start discussing where we thought it held in other domains or not. And as I started looking through more domains, music, you know, seeing again, this pattern that was contrary to my intuition. And it was actually a, a guy I ran track in college. And one of my training partners became a, a Tillman scholar. You know, he got a scholarship from the Pat Tillman Foundation. He joined the, the Marines um, sometime after college. And he invited me to speak to like a small group of Tillman scholars and I said, gosh, what am I going to talk to them about sports? But I have this interest in delayed specialization. So maybe I'll, I'll look and see about it in the work world because a lot of them are transitioning to new things. And I found a little bit of research about some of the benefits of these late transitions and uh, shared it with them. And they were all over it, you know, and I said, wow, you know, maybe there's more here. And as I started looking through more and more domains, it wasn't the case that being broader was always the best thing, but it was. In, in rapidly changing environments, like the ones that most of us work in now that are dynamic and human behaviors involved and work next year might not look like work last year. Those were the scenarios where people who are too narrowly specialized would fall into what scientists call cognitive entrenchment, where they would keep trying to use the same solution over and over and over, even when the problem had changed. And people who had sort of a broader toolbox that they could use to pivot 
were, were the ones who succeeded. And so it was something that started in, in sports and, and, you know, very much coming out of those discussions, I realized uh, this was actually a much broader issue. So that's a really long answer, but that's kind of encompasses some of the genesis of the project too. No, that's a great answer. And it kind of ties into kind of my next question. I mean, a lot of the book focuses on, hey, those potential pitfalls and over-specialization, particularly very early in one's career. And, and mm-hmm. I think you even mentioned, you know, a lot of highly credentialed experts, like you said, they fall back on those familiar tools. They become so narrow-minded based upon their experience that it can actually act in their, to their detriment. So can you extrapolate a little bit on, you know, why it may be better to defer specialization in favor of developing range? And, and then what are some of the dangers of that over-specialization early on? Yeah, so I think, and, and it's, it depends somewhat the, the kind of realm that we're, that we're talking about. Let's take medicine, because there's an area where if I were listening to me, I'd say, well, what about medicine, right? Because that's an area where I think increasing specialization has been both inevitable and beneficial, no, no doubt about it. And yet it's been, a, it's been a double-edged sword that I think we don't acknowledge enough, where to the point where in two, two recent uh, Harvard-led studies found that if you have a, you know, with certain cardiac conditions, if you're checked into a teaching hospital on the dates of a national cardiology convention, when the most esteemed specialists are away, you're less likely to die. And that's because you're, the researchers concluded that's because you're less likely to get a procedure that evidence has shown is not, doesn't, doesn't work anymore, is either not efficacious or, or dangerous, but that specialists have gotten so used to using over and over that they do it reflexively. It intuitively seems like it works. And that these specialist kind of societies will often become such echo chambers that they're able to kind of block out evidence from the outside. And I think that's sort of symbolic of what we see in some other domains, albeit some of those domains not with all the same benefits of of specialization that we see in medicine, where when people become too narrow, they start doing things just over and over and over and over again. And that that turns out to be the case in things like sports and music, where people that are too sort of formally, technically trained narrowly early will kind of get stuck in certain patterns. So when you go to Brazil, right, like when, when I lived in New York, I lived across the street from a U7 travel soccer team, right? I don't think there's a human being in the world that thinks six-year-olds need to travel because they can't find good enough competition in a city of 9 million people, you know? But you go to Brazil and the kids are playing futsal and they're playing on sand one day and cobblestones the next day and a different shape area. And, and that, that turns out to be to sort of differentiate their problem solving, right? It's giving them more different types of, of problems to solve. And that gets at this, this classic research finding that's whether it's physical or cognitive skills. This, this area of psychology can kind of summarize the classic finding as breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. Now, transfer is your ability to take your, your skills and knowledge and apply them in a situation you've never quite seen before. And what predicts your ability to do that is the breadth of problem types you've, you've faced in your training, where instead of just learning how to execute procedures, you're actually learning how to match strategies to types of problems. And I think that's one of the kind of overarching themes is you really want to diversify the types and domains of problems you face so that you have to create these more generalized models in your mind about structures of problems, essentially, if that makes some sense. I know I'm getting a little abstract there. But. No, actually, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it ties well into some of what I think maybe is some unique problems um, within our community. Uh, we're the engineering duty officer community, right? So we are engineers. So mm-hmm. by training, by, um, by experience, we are we're used to looking for patterns for repeatability. We're, we're used to operating in an environment where A plus B always equals C. But 
what you're describing, and I think what you 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 call it in the book are uh, are wicked learning environments, and you compare those to to kind learning environments. And I think a lot of what your research and, and what you talk about in the book is really helpful and applicable in those wicked environments. So can you define right. those terms for us and why the tools we develop for those kind learning environments may not be applicable for the wicked? Yeah. And that, those are terms I should give credit where it's due to a psychologist named Robin Hogarth who coined the kind and wicked learning environments. And by kind learning environment, what he meant was a domain where uh, next steps and goals are clear Rules are clear, never change. Patterns repeat. Feedback is quick and accurate. Work next year will look like work last year. So, you know, I opened the book with Tiger Woods. Like Golf is like that. Chess is another situation. The, the reason chess is so relatively easy to automate is because the Grandmaster's advantage is largely based on knowledge of recurring patterns. Not totally, but, but largely. And on the other end of the spectrum are what Hogarth called wicked, and it is a spectrum, what Hogarth called wicked learning environments, where next steps and goals may not just be handed to you. Uh, rules may or may not be clear. They may change without notice. Uh, patterns don't just repeat. Feedback could be delayed or inaccurate. Human behavior is involved. Work next year may not look like work last year. And and what what Ogarth argues, and and what I think a lot of other research argues implicitly, is that we are all in our work worlds. We're in both of those, right? We have to face both of those kinds of domains every day. But increasingly, we're spending a larger, you know, more and more time in that wicked learning environment where work is changing and we can't just do maybe what we did in other earlier in the 20th century, where you had a discrete period of learning or training followed by a discrete period of work. And you didn't really have to, to relearn throughout your career the same way. And so, so I do think more specialization, earlier specialization in, in a lot of domains made more sense when we were kind of a more industrial economy and work world where people could, would face more similar problems over and over and over again. But I think we're not, not really there anymore. No, I appreciate that. And it, it's good that you tie that in because I mean, I think a lot of the struggle for us as a community is how do we make that transition from that 20th century industrial era mindset to the 21st, to a digital uh, environment where things, the speed of change is at a much faster pace. And part of our training as a community, we, we're all required to go off and get an engineering master's degree, but you seem to be advocating for a broader range of both technical and non-technical skills, which I found particularly fascinating. Can you give us some examples and, you know, maybe what are the benefits of pursuing a broad range of hobbies, particularly the non-technical ones? Yeah. And this kind of shows up everywhere, right? Like Nobel laureate scientists are about 22 times more likely to have a hobby unrelated to their work um, as are their peer scientists. And by the way, hobbies unrelated to your work increase self-efficacy and, and hobbies too closely related to your work kind of tend to decrease self-efficacy. There's similar findings for, for engineers. And they all kind of look to me like the work from this woman named Abby Griffin, who studies so-called serial innovators. Now, these are people who are, you know, really good at creative problem solving. They're making repeated contributions to their organizations. A lot of them are engineers. And when she describes these people, she'll say, well, they have a need to learn outside their domain. They have networks with people who are outside of their own area of expertise. They tend to read more and more widely uh, than their peers. They repurpose uh, old stuff and old technologies in new ways. Uh, they connect disparate pieces of information from different domains, all these things like that, right? And as she says, they appear to flit among ideas was one of the things she says, which which normally doesn't sound like a compliment, right? And and she'll sort of say, you know, dear HR people, just so you know, when you're when you're defining your job as the too narrowly, you're looking for the square peg in the square hole, you're going to miss these people, right? The ones who come up with these sort of new uh, solutions. And so I think we need to we need to sort of be aware of the fact that if we want to diversify someone's toolbox, like we have to, 
we often have to give them some incentive to do that, right? Because otherwise, momentum in most people's professional life just takes them to increasing specialization. So you actually sort of have to proactively broaden yourself. I think that showed up maybe in, in some research that might feel relevant to engineers that I wrote about in range about 3M, you know, which is one of the most innovative companies in the world. They have 7,000 inventors. And it was looking at which inventors really make big contributions. And there were generalists and specialists. And this was, they were measured by their, their breadth or, or specialization was measured by the number of different technological classes they had worked in as defined by the patent office. And the generalists who had worked in lots of different technological classes, they made contributions. The specialists, they made contributions. There were sort of dilettantes who weren't that broad or deep, and they didn't tend to make contributions. The biggest contributions were these sort of polymaths who tended to have one or two areas where they got a foothold, like they had some depth. And then they sacrificed increasing depth for some breadth over their career. And they would start merging things from different domains, right? Taking something that was seen as like typical knowledge in, in one area and bringing it over somewhere else where they were aware that suddenly it would be seen as invention. And so I think, you know, within something like engineering, we should take the opportunities to let people work in a lot of different teams. That's one of the great ways to do this because then they cross fertilize knowledge uh, themselves. And so that's good for the organization. They're, they're in researchers who study networks of teams that do well in times of rapid change. So basically, if you see a network of teams that is all or mostly repeat collaborations, that's one that better hope that the problems they're facing are the same. The ones that do well in times of change, there's plenty of repeat collaborations, but there's also this constant movement of people between teams. And this, this pattern holds whether it's physical or social scientists or the teams that develop Broadway plays. And this movement of people between teams is these researchers call an import-export business of ideas. These people are taking knowledge that's sort of standard on one team and they're moving it somewhere else where it's seen as invention. And you keep that import-export business going and that develops these both these broad people and adaptable organizations. And so I think that's sort of an important way to think about structuring organizations, especially now where, you know, it, it reminds me of the engineer Bill Gore, who founded the company that created Gore-Tex. He fashioned it after his observation that organizations tend to do their most impactful work in times of crisis because the disciplinary boundaries go out the window and people start learning how they can help their colleagues and what they can learn from each other. Or he said, like, real communication happens in the carpool. I think that's important to think about because sometimes now with more remote work, we have some great technological tools, but but where's the carpool? I don't think that means we can't have it. I think we the, the more systematic we can be about creating that import-export business of ideas some of it relies on serendipity, but some of it can be programmed. We will create breadth in our team members and adaptability in our organizations. That's a great point. In fact, our, our last guest that we just had on was uh, was Captain Durant. He had been working Operation Warp Speed. It's now the you know the federal government uh, COVID nineteen response now. Uh, but that was one of the things that he continued to highlight about how they were able to do things so quickly. Is one the rules kind of went out the window. So so long as everything was mm-hmm. you know legal and moral. Hey, go get it done. And which we, we found to be incredible that the speed that we can still, we think a lot of times the government response can be a little plotting, but the speed that we were able to accomplish as a result of that. But the other thing too was they were crash course learning on how do we operate in the COVID-19 teleworking environment where we're, we don't have those serendipitous interactions. And so it was good to hear that he had based upon his broad range of experience. And the different jobs that he had done, he was able to, to rely on a lot of old connections that he had made across his entire career with people from disparate different uh, different areas, different fields. And, and so those were some very interesting lessons that we took away from that that seems to kind of comport with what you're saying there. Yeah, and that's interesting you mentioned the, 
the personal network too, because a, a character in the last chapter of Range named Arturo Casadevall, who's the head of immunology at Johns Hopkins, he ended up running this thing called the Convalescent Plasma Project, the National COVID-19 Convalescent Plasma Project. People have probably heard of to use blood plasma from people who are recovering and have antibodies and transfuse it. I think that, you know, the jury's still out on how effective that that is, but uh, it was certainly something worth worth trying. And he was able to pull it together so quickly because Arturo had worked in, with people in with so many different areas of expertise that when an emergency came, he was able to draw together really a national interdisciplinary collaboration like overnight, you know, with like no funding, understanding what people did, what they were good at. And so he really used this network that he accumulated by working in, in so many different teams. I thought that was pretty pretty cool to see. No, that's good to know. And it's always encouraged or it's always good to encourage engineers to make sure they, we get out of our shells, we interact with people, we broaden our contacts and, and our experience. So that, that's good advice. But let me ask you this. So uh, you kind of note in the book that despite this exponential growth of human knowledge uh, and uh, human experience uh, and the human mind, really the expansion of the human mind's capabilities over time, our education system still continues to focus on, you know, the narrow specialties. We are encouraged very early, yeah. pick a specialty. If you don't do it early, you'll be behind. And one of the things I found interesting in that discussion, though, was that students in field of study after field of study, they struggle in some of that basic thinking, that basic reasoning that you talk about there. With with one notable exception, though, you, you called out economists. So what's so special about economics as a discipline? They did better. <laughs> Nobody was great. This is you're talking about these this uh, this research on sort of general analytical thinking tools. The economists did do better. If you interact with many economists, they seem to have a habit of kind of red teaming ideas, like at all times, right? And I think that I think that gets toward a little bit of what I talk about in chapter ten with the the super forecasters, which is they're almost like playing intellectual games a lot of times. I think economists is that they treat ideas that other people throw out as these sort of hypotheses in need of testing. And for whatever reason, maybe because it's easier to picture the economic frame on the world than it is the chemical one or something like that, they seem to take their frame of analytical thinking. I think it's kind of a broad science to begin with, right? If you look at what economists are doing, it's the, the sort of fundamental knowledge isn't as rigid as it is in, in some other areas. And so I think they sort of focus on these analytical frames through which to, to view the world. And that seems to give them a kind of a, a bit of a benefit of transfer when they are looking in other domains. But I think, I think other, other domains could get that. I was in grad school for geology at one point. I got off that track and I realized in retrospect that I committed like statistical malpractice in my own master's thesis, but I didn't know it at the time. Cause at the time I'd run statistical programs on a, you know, through a big da database and get a bunch of spurious correlations and all that. But I didn't realize I had not been taught like actual scientific thinking, um, at the time. And this past peer review, of course, <laughs> um, but I, I didn't know any better. It wasn't purposeful, statistical malpractice. And one of the things that's sort of emblematic to me about these trade-offs between, you know, being forced to specialize quickly and sort of pick up all this didactic information versus cultivating these broader thinking tools was when I was at Northwestern University spending time with a woman named Deidre Gentner, who is maybe the world's expert in analogical problem solving. It's using analogies to solve problems, which turns out to be a crucial uh, technique when you're facing really hard problems that you haven't seen before, or maybe that nobody's seen before. And what she found was she created this test that she gave to students to have them solve some problems like in their major, and then problems in other domains as well. And, and some of those problems were structurally identical, just the surface sort of 
features were changed, right? It was just transposed into something they were less familiar with. And students tended to do okay solving problems in their major and then really poorly when even like a little bit of stuff was changed, which in the, in the real world, right, problems are not single domain. So that's more uh, indicative of the real world. Ex- the exception were students in this program called the Integrated Science Program, where instead of having one major, they had a bunch of different minors where they learned the the basic tools and and the, the methods of inquiry of all these different sciences, essentially. And that gave them this sort of broad toolbox that they could draw on to match strategies to, to structures of problems. Now, the interesting thing, when I went around to her colleagues and asked about that program, they were like, ah, you know, we don't really like it. Those kids don't have a major. They're getting behind. I'm like, this is, here's the fundamental tension. You have the world's expert, your own colleague saying, these are the kids we're doing the best with for creative problem solving. And her own colleagues saying, ah, yeah, but those kids are getting behind. So that to me kind of captured some of the fundamental tension between developing these broader thinking skills and, and getting rushed into a, a specific area. No, that's good. And, and it's a good transition because, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit to you about the, the power of analogical thinking. You kind of focus on that. And I really love the example you give of Kepler and some of the analytical power that he had in working through the analogies of how the solar system and how the how the um, the galaxy moved and, and everything else. And he would, as he was struggling with areas that he didn't quite get fully grasped yet, he was always kind of working through the power of analogy, finding something that he could compare it to, testing that hypothesis, and then um, and he had the intellectual humility to throw away the ideas if it you know if it didn't quite mm-hmm. fit the data. So why is analogy so helpful in making these connections in between you know what would appear to be unrelated fields. Yeah, I think for Kepler, you you mentioned one of the really important things was that he didn't just throw out these analogies for kicks, although he did seem to enjoy it. They were giving him testable hypotheses. Like when he was thinking about planetary motion and and what force, what he would call motive force, could be causing planets to move, he'd say, well, is it something like light? Could it be, well, this is, you know, light is something that you see at its source and you see it at its destination but you don't necessarily see it between those places. Okay, so this is possible, right? It would give him these these things to test to say, is this even possible or magnetism and all these other things. And so it was it was a way for him to, to sort of grope in the dark when, you know, th- this was at a time you have to remember that there were not forces acting throughout the universe, right? This was just not like modern physics thinking wasn't even occurring. And so it would give him a, sort of a foothold to have something to test. But I think, even more than that, in you know, in more sort of modern problem-solving uh, situations, one of the some of the research that I discussed was by Kevin Dunbar, a psychologist who sat in, followed for several years, a number of different labs. They were molecular biology at the time because that was kind of one of the, the hot areas, and he would watch the problem-solving process. He wasn't allowed to move information between labs, but what he would see was that when a sticky problem came up. One of the predictors of whether it would be solved or not, of the number of solutions people would come up with and whether or not it would be solved was the number and breadth of analogies to structurally similar situations they could come up with. And what that was predicted by the kind of diversity of the work histories and and areas of expertise of the people on the team. He, in one case, saw one team of all people who had expertise in the exact same area face the same problem not long, you know, in pretty similar time to another group that had this incredibly wide range, like they had some med students and some scientists and things. And the diverse group solved it right at the lab meeting when it came up with some, with a, an analogy, I think from the med student and the team of all specialists had to go through like six months of trial and error to come up with something that worked. And why exactly this happens, I think 
we'd have to speculate on mechanism a little bit, but there's this body of research that finds that when you're facing a problem you've never seen before, your set of solutions and, and the one that, and your likelihood of getting one that's right is predicted by this number and breadth of analogies you can come up with. And by the way, there's a, there was a neat military example that I kind of, that's related that I, that I cut out, I had to cut out like 30,000 words of my initial book draft. It had to do with a soldier who was tasked with evaluating the U.S. counterinsurgency plans um, in Iraq. There were some high-ranking officers who were sort of arguing, saying, like, I think it's going to be, I think we're in this situation that's, you know, sort of like some, like Desert Storm or something. And another was, no, no, this is more like uh, Vietnam or whatever it was. Because we tend to use only the analogies, like the most salient, the most dramatic one in our minds. And this one soldier, I think his name was Caleb Sepp, if I remember went away for like 36 hours, came up with 50 some counterinsurgencies, looked at, you know, that he thought were analogous, even though they were in different places and different times, looked at what characteristics they had in common, came up with a dozen that they all had in common and said that, you know, our plan only had one of those that all the successful ones had of these, of these dozen. And so this is an exercise called reference class forecasting, which is basically go away, find as many structurally similar analogies as you can, then come back and it will inevitably have changed your thinking about the problem you're facing. And so this reference class forecasting turns out to be like a really, really important mental exercise. Okay, so reference class forecasting. Another thing we're going we're gonna to add to our tool bag. So thank you for that. So we, we talked a little bit about the personal connections and the importance that they plays in, you know, broadening our range of studies and interests and personal hobbies even too. But in order to harness that power of analogical thinking, how do we further build our database from which we can draw these these pictures and these examples to, to compare to our situation we find ourselves in? Well, I'll tell you a way that I do it is I take, when I try to characterize a problem and then I start taking it to people, I try to maintain a network of people who are have quite different interests from me, right? Because I've noticed as, and, and I'll share those problems with them. Like even when I was an investigative reporter and be like, oh, you know, people would say like, ah, can, I, I know maybe I'm not supposed to ask, but can I ask what you're working on? And I'm like always like volunteering it. I'm not worried about somebody stealing it from me. I need help like conceptualizing the problems or knowing how to attack it. And I noticed as I became sort of more competent in my field, my professional social circle kind of contracted to the point where most of the people I was around were using the same techniques that I was. And so I wasn't getting sort of new information. When I became a staff writer at Sports Illustrated, I left that to take an internship at a then startup called ProPublica that now is like a pretty prominent investigative outfit, literally going from like an office on the 32nd floor over 6th Avenue in Manhattan to scanning documents for another reporter at a startup, you know, with and going from like my Sports Illustrated staff writer salary to an intern salary, because I realized my learning curve was leveling off. I had kind of learned the techniques that the people around me at SI were using. And these people at ProPublica were using totally different <laughs> techniques. I went there and that tremendously expanded my understanding of, you know, my toolbox for approaches I could take to different stories and to different investigations. And I've tried to do that over and over through my career. It's like when I get to a place where I'm feeling too comfortable, knock myself out of that and go somewhere else where I'm feeling incompetent. Like even as simple as when I was writing range and I got in a rut, I decided to sign up for an online beginner's fiction writing course. And that, it, it was like a revelation for me. And so it, it gave me, I was stuck and it gave me some new ideas for tackling some structure that like the penultimate chapter of the book that's about NASA uh, is, well, and, and it's about engineering. It's partly about it, what you do in engineering decisions when you don't have the data that you would like to have to answer the question. I could not figure out how to structure that chapter. And it was this online fiction writing class that gave me like a new model for thinking about how to structure it. And so I think as we get more competent, 
we need to become more proactive about seeking out, you know, people we can either bounce things off or learn things from who have different mental models than we do. It's like the Charlie Munger thing, right? He says like, I don't think anything new. I'm just like collecting mental models from all these. He has 96 or 103, whatever he has, however many mental models it is. I don't know, but I think of it that way, like collecting these different mental models. Well, let me jump ahead a little bit then too, because the examples that you gave in that chapter on the Challenger and Columbia disasters, they really struck a personal chord for me in that. In, in fact, I watched the Challenger documentary on Netflix not too terribly long ago, and I was sitting there with my wife every night, and I'm like, ugh. I'm just squeamish because I can feel myself hopefully never with stakes that high, but I felt myself in that room so many times where I've been faced with very similar type problems. And I'm like, I've heard these same conversations going on. I can definitely feel how how they got to this decision, even though obviously in retrospect, we can look back and say that that was a terrible decision. But based upon, you know, kind of the data they had, just kind Mm -hmm. of took it and they used those familiar tools that they had. But you kind of Tying it back into where we're saying those familiar tools that we that we fall back on, um, they're not really necessarily helpful for us in those wicked learning environments. So how do you know then, I guess, when you should, quote unquote, cancel launch when you don't have that data that's explicitly telling you to do that? And, and how do you know when you're in that wicked environment as opposed to a kind learning environment and when you should drop your tools versus when you should keep using them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the best thing you can do is in, in that situation too, there were a lot of signs that, you know, some of the engineers realized they didn't have the data that they, they wanted to make the decision. So w- there was some people realized prospectively, but also that their culture didn't really allow an argument that wasn't only data-based, right? Whether or not you had the data that you actually wanted. I think one of the, the, one of the best things you can do so I think there's no perfect answer for this, right? And we're talking when we're talking about something like a space shuttle, you're talking about like they don't really have room to to fail. So I think what the research suggests is that the best thing to do is you have to mix up your organizational culture a little bit. And and what I mean is in that case, NASA had come to for the engineers to feel extremely process accountable, right? So it wasn't just the decision that I wrote about in in the book, but there had become a pattern of it, it becoming okay to make decisions that weren't that good and that that, that engineers they didn't really like if they thought it was the one that was easiest to justify with the data. Now, on the one hand, you, you maybe want some culture like that because often people are making decisions that they like in spite of data, right? So you don't want them just going with their intuition. On the other hand, there became this, this pattern of if, if you could justify something with data, even if there were sort of other signals of kind of blocking those out. And, and what the research suggests is a way to deal with this is when I said mixing up culture, meaning m- making people kind of unsure if they're going to be held accountable for their process by which they make decisions or the outcome of those actual decisions or making them feel like they're accountable for both. And so when you get too far toward process accountability, people will start to make errors of mindless conformity. Like they will do some version uh, of what happened with NASA at that point, where they stuck to a decision-making system even when it clearly was not the right one. If you go to the other extreme and you make people feel only accountable for their outcomes, then you end up with mistakes of reckless deviation, where there where there there's like no you know process culture that you can lean back on for sort of most of the time. And so what this research says is that you need to you need to mix that. You need to make people feel like they're accountable partly for their process and partly for their outcomes. And the bad thing about this is that 
people sometimes don't like that. They report more comfort when they can identify very easily whether they're going to be accountable for their outcomes or for their process. But when they're in this more, you know, mixed culture, they spend a lot more time trying to characterize the problem they're facing and see whether they have the proper information to, to answer it or not. And they will, they will still start from the standpoint of familiar processes, but they will deviate when signals say that's not going to work this time. And so I think this is a challenge, right? And especially if I think of something like a NASA or like the military, we have this incredibly strong culture and incredibly strong tradition and incredibly important processes. How do you mix that a little bit so that, so that people are sort of forced to be a little uncomfortable and, and think on their feet? I, I think you can do that without diluting cohesion, but I think that requires artful leadership. You know, I appreciate that perspective, and it's something definitely that we're we're working through. We're thinking through what that looks like. We can become slaves to the process and just find ourselves pushing paper, checking boxes, just so we have all of the all of our ducks in a row, and not really thinking, pulling back, and seeing the bigger picture of how these pieces are fitting together. Why we are doing the things that we are doing. I mean, speaking of the checking boxes, right when the Columbia disaster happened, that was like the ultimate. So Werner von Braun, who was the engineer, famous for a variety of reasons, but he, he led the development of the Saturn V uh, rocket, which first put humans on the moon. And the Saturn V was 60 feet longer than the Statue of Liberty, pedestal included, right? So even when his teams were working on it, literally at the same time, they were still physically remote from one another, essentially. You know, they weren't like looking over one another's shoulders. He realized that everyone's work affected everyone else and that when something would come up, it would have to ripple through the chain of command and it would be really slow. And so he started this thing he called Monday Morning Notes, where every Monday morning, he would have each of his engineering team leads put on one piece of paper and one piece only. They're selling issues, problems, whatever, unexpected findings. Occasionally, they would put social issues, like discussion on them, but not usually. He would write handwritten in the margin. He would put some notes and they would recirculate them all to everyone so everyone could see what other people were working on and his response to it in his informal handwriting. Like you could see him over and over. Someone would bring up some major problem and he would put congrats, exclamation point. Because he wanted to be seen congratulating people for bringing up problems before it had to ripple through the chain of command. And this was, he didn't use this terminology, but in research, this is what he was doing, was differentiating the chain of communication from the chain of command. And when he left, Monday morning notes stayed, but it became, turned into a form letter that only went upward, didn't recirculate, no notes, form letter. People came to see it as box checking. And that was cited as one of the major cultural failings by the Columbia Investigation Board, where the chain of communication and chain of command became one and the same. And in fact, when engineers asked, you know, engineers who were cognizant of what had gone on in the past with, with Challenger, asked Department of Defense actually for some high resolution images that they thought might help diagnose a problem, their managers blocked the request and apologized for the request outside the, the chain of command. Of course, we, we know what happened there. And so I think the, the process became like a self-perpetuating beast that became so much more important than the outcome. Uh, and, and that's that's what you saw in that situation. Yeah, that's an important point and something I'd, let's drop anchor and talk on that one a little bit. So particularly when we talk about the chain of command versus the chain of communication, definitely that's something I think we as a community, we try and encourage, particularly officers on the more junior end or engineers on the more junior end. Hey, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call somebody just because they're wearing stars on their collar if you've got the right answer, you've got to be, you know, you got to know that you need to get that information to them. At the same time, we are a process oriented culture and we are very 
aware, very cognizant of the chain of command. So how do you balance that where you've got an admiral or a general who's receiving communication from points far and wide coming into them? It's very easy to, to overwhelm their bandwidth. So how yeah. do we balance that between, hey, making sure we get them the right information that they need at the same time, trying to respect that chain of command and just their their human bandwidth limitations. Yeah, I mean, I think process is incredibly important, right? Like, you certainly don't want the opposite where everyone's freestyling. That's that's an even bigger problem. But I think I think what you're mentioning is arguably like the bajillion dollar question of organizations um, and adaptable organizations. And I think there are sort of two things I can think of that I think are useful. One is you need some informal culture, right? You need I was I was obsessed two years ago with reading War and Peace, and and part of it is focused on Napoleon's decisions in Russia and how he became so aloof from the people on the ground in some ways that he would make decisions and they would take they would get down to the battlefield. By the time they got there, they were irrelevant because the situation had changed, and that would have to come way back up through the chain of command. By the time he get that feedback, that would be irrelevant. So he'd make another relevant decision and just continue the cycle of irrelevancy, basically, because everything was happening too slowly. And I think to avoid that, one, you need some informal culture, right? You need people who, if something is important, are willing to, to, to get information where it needs to go no matter what the case is. And I think, I think an example of someone who did that well, someone I write about in range named Frances Hesselbein, who kind of became my personal role model. She was the CEO of the Girl Scouts, took her first professional job at age 54, became CEO of the Girl Scouts. And she had one semester of junior college education, right? Her predecessors had been like the woman who started the Women's Coast Guard Reserve during World War II, you know, a university dean, like these incredible people. She had one semester of junior college education. And I think that made her very aware of the fact that she did not have the expertise or knowledge. I don't think any single person could, but she was more aware of it. To, to turn the organization around because it was hemorrhaging money and members and volunteers and everything. And so she came in and said, all right, I'm going to redraw the structure to get more information flowing. And so she, she got rid of their, the kind of hierarchical org chart and created what she called circular management, where it was more like individuals were like beads on concentric circles. And what that meant in practice was that she wanted everyone at each level to have multiple contacts at each adjacent level through whom they could advance information in one way. And she was at the middle, you know, in one direction or another. And she quickly started learning that, you know, getting more information from the ground, that they had campsites that were good for nostalgia, but nobody was using, that they they weren't appealing to the the changing demographics that they needed to attract, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it was it, it was by making sure each person had more connections at different levels that they could go to for help, that they could go to for problems. And it was and that doesn't mean that everything is getting where it needs to go. But I think it 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 dilutes the gatekeeping effect essentially, and so I so I think that's that was a way of sort of programming in some stronger kind of kind of informal culture that I think like the military often does a great job of engendering when it comes to smaller teams, you know, of of putting them through things that cause this incredibly strong informal culture. Right? You know, sometimes it's suffering together that builds this very strong informal culture even if people go their separate ways to, to do their jobs. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears on you here a little bit. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, fox versus hedgehog thinking. And really, I just, I just really like the picture there. But what, what do you mean by that? These are, again, these are all terms that I'm, I'm taking from others. But in, in this case, from a psychologist and political scientist named Philip Tetlock, who in turn took them from a philosopher who in turn took them from an ancient. But 
these are these characterize two different styles of thinking. So there's this this parable that the hedgehog knows one big thing and the fo- the fox knows many small things and the hedgehog knows one big thing. And which one of these is better? You know, and there are situations in which each are appropriate. But the research I was looking at was a probably the famous the most famous study of forecasting ever done. 20 years long, over 82,000 predictions that were made on geopolitical, economic, you know, technological trends. And it turned out that the worst forecasters turned out to be the most specialized experts, those who'd spent their entire career studying kind of one or two problems. Again, this doesn't mean that we don't need those people because sometimes they create new knowledge. But in terms of forecasting, they'd spent their entire career studying kind of one or two problems, came to see the whole world through one lens or mental model. And they would often get worse, actually, at forecasting as they gained experience and credentials. They would start bending everything to fit these certain narratives. And the best forecasters turned out to be people who sometimes they had an area of expertise, sometimes they didn't, but that didn't so much matter more than, you know, what they thought was how they thought. They were perspective gatherers. So to make the the hedgehog and fox uh, metaphor even uglier, the, the guy who led the research described them as having dragonfly eyes, foxes with dragonflies. Dragonflies' eyes are made of thousands of different lenses. Each one takes a different picture, and then those are integrated in the dragonfly's brain. And so he said, that's how these people behave. They go around. They need specialists. They go to them for facts, not opinions. They, they gather all these different perspectives from, uh, from different areas, and then they synthesize them. And those people turned out to do incredibly well. In fact, they, they smoked a prediction market of intelligent, intelligence analysts with access to classified data, even though they did not have that access to classified data. It worked so well, they spun it off into a uh, its own prediction business, actually. You can go see Time Magazine wrote them up for, I think the title was something like Eerily Accurate COVID-19 Forecasts or something like that. And so it was this perspective collecting uh, that was the hallmark of the best thinkers. And what was really interesting to me was when they were put on teams of 12, these fox or dragonfly, whatever you want to call them, these perspective collector types, they became much better as individual forecasters when they were grouped with other people like them who saw their own ideas as hypotheses in need of testing and other people as resources for collecting information that they themselves didn't have. I would never have, and so my forecasting skill, I would never have predicted that they would have improved as much as individuals as they did by being put together with one another. It was like this And I got to see some of their conversations, which was great. And it was very much like what Phil Tetlock, the researcher who led this work called antagonism without being antagonistic. They would poke each other without making it personal. Uh, it It was about the ideas. No, that's actually, that's great advice. And I think one of the things that I wrote down when I was reading through the book is, hey, you know, pride seems to be one of the things or pride of ownership or pride of one's personal ideas versus humility and being willing to have your ideas challenged, written out more as a hypothesis instead of a statement of fact. So that's something I took away from that. I mean, I think one of the hallmarks of sort of good generalists, I'll say, is what I think of as epistemic humility. Just being humble about what you know, how you know what you know, continually interrogating your own beliefs and updating your own mental models. You know, one way I've found to to get some more of that is actually to keep track of predictions I make because I noticed that I only remember good predictions I made unless I actually like record them somewhere. <laughs> and so it's much more helpful for updating your mental models if you also keep track of, you know, the ones where you didn't do so well. Yeah, it's probably always good to remind ourselves that we're that we are fallible human beings, right? We only that confirmation bias of 
well, you know, it, the data seems to prove me always right. It, you should probably should question yourself there a little bit. And it also sort of fights that when, as I read through Tetlock's work and saw the hallmarks of, of people with sort of poor judgment, and, and you can be really smart, by the way, some of these, some cognitive biases of judgment affect brighter people more strongly because they can always sort of find data to fit whatever situation they want. You know, you'd find in the worst forecasters, things like they would say, like, I, I was right there. I know I got it wrong, but if just one thing had been different, like I would have nailed it. Maybe that's true, but you got it wrong, right? So sometimes they would fail to learn even from, in fact, you know, we're, we're talking to engineers, they'll know, like you would look at Bayesian thinking, right? It's like when, when you make a prediction, if you made it very strongly and it turned out wrong, you should adjust your certainty, right? You should move your, your confidence in your underlying assumptions. And some of the most narrowly specialized kind of hedgehogs would make a strong prediction, get it wrong. And then adjust their priors, you know, adjust their assumptions in the wrong direction. I think that's that's when you've really lost perspective on things, right? When you're no longer updating, no matter what came of your decision. What's that old quote? It's something like, "If the facts don't fit the theory, change the facts," exactly, or something like exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, and um, you know, the Department of Defense. A lot of times, we have difficulty in making accurate predictions, particularly when it comes to like cost predictions. You, you might see that in the news a lot of times. Major system acquisitions, we are mm-hmm. off by orders of magnitude sometimes. Mm-hmm. But you note that you know, like 90% of major infrastructure projects worldwide go over budget. So why are we so optimistic when it comes to, to major cost predictions, particularly those big projects? Yeah, and they go over. They don't just go over. They go over by like 30% <laughs> or something on average. Well, I think, and, and let, let's, let's dispense with things like something untoward going on in, in, in planning or something like that, but because it actually, it, it holds even for like people's home projects, they, they go over to even smaller projects by a lot. And I think some of it is the planning fallacy, right? Is our, uh, that's a cognitive bias by which we always underestimate how long things will take, like how many tasks there are to do, uh, and an optimism bias. And, and I think there's some, that, that tendency to underestimate how many resources are needed you, you can combat that. So when I was doing this research, I was looking at some infrastructure projects in the UK where after this, incre- this like incredible overrun of an infrastructure project that like was a decade late and like double the cost that it was supposed to be, some projects were then required to do what we talked about before, reference class forecasting, where they would say, go find a whole bunch of other projects, you know, that seem like they have structural similarities and tell us how much those cost. And when you do that, you give it to people, they revise their estimate enormously and they got much more accurate. So I decided to do that with some home renovation stuff that I was doing where we got a quote, you know, from somebody who was going to do it. And I said, all right, let me go to all the other people that have sort of a similar house and then some other people with different houses that are doing kind of a similar project and, and see what, what their actual experience was. And based on that, I guessed that the estimate we got would be off by a hundred percent about and that turned out to be pretty close, actually. So I would advise reference class forecasting as a requirement for bids. And that will give both the people taking the bids more perspective. And when it's done, whatever the domain is, when people are made to do reference class forecasting, they tend to make huge revisions to what their actual cost predictions are. Well, that's fascinating and very, very timely and good inf- uh, good recommendation. Thank you very much for that. Okay, so... In the interest of broadening our range and building our more general uh, general education, and we do this with everybody, do you have any good book recommendations for us other than range, obviously? 
Yeah, I mean, you don't need to read anything else other than Ray. It's got everything you need. No, I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so the first, I've mentioned super forecasting a lot. So Phil Tetlock's book, Expert Political Judgment, like rocked my world in terms of it made me a much more conscious thinker about my own thinking. It's dense and academic, though. And if you want a more popular treatment, his book, Super Forecasting, is a more, is a more popular treatment. And we talked about the kind and wicked learning environments. Robin Hogarth, who's the psychologist who coined those terms, just has a new book out that he co-wrote called The Myth of Experience. So again, I'm going to give you the duality. He wrote a book called Educating Intuition that is great, but is more sort of for the academic audience. And The Myth of Experience has some of that and is a more popular book and it's new. So those those are two. Or, or four, I guess, depending on how you look at the recommendation I just made. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Well, I have really enjoyed this conversation, but this is great. I could talk about this stuff all day long. I really enjoyed the book, and, and I'm hoping that our community and, and really the, the Navy and the Department of Defense will take some, some good lessons out of this. So, uh, again, I appreciate so much you coming on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us in the wardroom. Special thanks to our sound engineer, Lieutenant Andrew Rowley. If you have questions you would like our guests to answer, comments, or suggestions, you can email us at thewardroompodcast at gmail.com or tweet or follow us on Twitter at wardroompodcast. Join us next time for a panel on work-life balance chaired by Captain Sid Hodgson. We look forward to meeting again in The Wardroom.